Welcome to Equosity, the podcast about all things equine, with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. This is part two of our conversation with Dr. Sarah Mimi. Sarah is a behavioral scientist. She teaches at the University of Louisville in Kentucky, where she's an assistant professor of marketing in the College of Business. That sounds like it's a long way away from horses, but Sarah is a lifelong horse person. And so there are many connections between what she's doing now and her interest in horses. And one of those connections is clicker training. That's something we talked about a lot in our first conversation with Sarah, which we published in August and September of 2021. Sarah's main area of research is how people pursue goals, how they handle conflicts between multiple goals, and how they manage their personal resources, how they manage their time and money. So certainly, Goals is something that's very relevant to all of us who have horses, and particularly time management, because there's so many pressures on our lives. So that was definitely something that we talked about with Sarah as well. And then we also, in that very first conversation, we talked about how you become a welcome guest in other people's barns. Sarah doesn't currently have her own horse, but she very much wanted to continue to be able to ride. So we had a really interesting conversation about how she's created many opportunities for herself, not only to ride other people's horses, but even to be invited to clicker train them. So that was that was fascinating. And we had a really long, long conversation with Sarah, and we just barely scratched the surface of all the things that we wanted to talk about with her. So we invited her back for a second afternoon of conversation, and we definitely filled an entire afternoon. So this is part two of that conversation. In part one, we focused in on control, control and choices. And Sarah defined control for us as the ability to gain desired outcomes. And that's both to get away from things that you don't like and to get to the things that you want. In the positive reinforcement community, we talk a lot about control and we think of control as being reinforcing. So we're drawn to strategies that give our animal learners choice. That choice is very much part of feeling that you're in control. But the challenge, as Sarah was pointing out to us, is finding the right balance for how many choices you present. So no choice is restricting, but too much choice can be paralyzing. And any of us who've ever gone shopping for something that you know we need, but we're not that familiar with, might be a new phone and all of the choices in terms of of smartphones and 
Do you buy this year's newest, greatest model or will last year's do for you? You know, there's so many choices. It can be paralyzing. So more choice comes with a cost. It's more demanding cognitively to process each option, to figure out which one, which choice to make. Which of the many cell phone options do you get? You know, it's not as simple as thinking, do I want to live with the silver one, the pink one, or the black one? It's like, now that's which size do I want? Which brand do I want? What are all the features that I want that I have to choose between? And as Sarah pointed out, that, you know, the more similar the choices become, well, now you have to navigate really subtle trade-offs. And for many of us, that can create a real emotional burden. You know, what really is the difference between this version of cell phone, which is just fractionally smaller than its neighbor over there? What are the trade-offs that you're going to be making when you choose one over the other? So all of that comes at a cost. It comes at a cognitive cost. It comes at an emotional cost. And the question becomes how, well, there are really two questions. How do you learn to make good choices? And, and as a teacher or parent or the designer of those products, how do you structure the choices so that making a choice is, is easy and it doesn't feel like a burden? So Sarah shared several strategies that lead to an information reduction. So she shared the story of the ritual that she has at bedtime with her four-year-old son that they, they read a book together and her son gets to choose the book. But when it was, which out of this big stack of books, you know, all of your books, which of them would you like me to read to you? It became a real problem for her son. He was tired, you know, it's bedtime, and he's having to make the choice between many books that he enjoys, and it was creating stress. So Sarah reduced the number of choices. She would go in ahead of time and pick out which of the two books would her son like to read, and that removed all the anxiety. So she made it easier for him to choose. Making choices easier can actually increase an individual's perception of control. So this brought us to an interesting discussion as it relates to our horses, that restricting choices by creating boundaries and structure can give us an increased feeling of control. That for individuals who feel low control, they often want to be in structured environments. That can be physically structured environments. It can be socially very hierarchical environments, but they seek structure. It's these things, it's this physical structure, it's this hierarchical social structure that makes the environment more predictable. And predictability is a big part of why we seek structure and control. So how do you compensate when you feel low in control? You seek structure. And that made me wonder if perhaps there isn't a conflict between what people want and what our horses need. 
So an owner might feel secure and most at home in a barn that has stalls and small square well-fenced paddocks. And that's what she's drawn to. But her horse might do better with no stall at all in a large social group turned out in a big pasture with boundaries that merge into woods and streams and, and feel more like the natural environment. So we're used to thinking that boundaries and fewer choices is a bad thing. And what Sarah is helping us to see is that choice and control is so much more complex. And there are definitely times when too much choice can be paralyzing. So we ended part one with a question that centers around choice architecture. That's a great phrase, and we're going to be exploring it in more depth to really understand what that means. But basically, what we're going to be looking at are what are some of the ways to simplify things so it's easier to pick from among a range of choices. How do you and your horse learn to make good choices? And then how do we, as teachers, set up the environment to make it easier for our learners, whether those are human learners or our animal learners? That's where we're going to pick up in part two of our conversation. That's what Dominique is, is going to be asking. What are some of the ways to simplify things so it's easier to pick from all the choices? What are other uh, ways for us to to simplify that? To simplify uh, for yeah, ourselves. To simplify for ourselves. You yeah. know, you have to choose a car or pick a husband and future father for your children. How yeah. do you pick among <laughs> all the choices? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, really, it's a, a lot of it is about is is about impose choosing those boundaries for yourself and being willing to just let go of some options, you know, being kind of emotionally okay with that. There are some people who, who say that, you know, uh, online dating is one reason why people have really low relationship satisfaction because there's so much choice that, you know, we're not really actually evolved to process that many choices in terms of romantic partner, you know, you're, you're, you know, like, like for most of human history, you had your village and that was about it. Right. And, and that we're not really, I, I'm thankfully old enough to have not had to be involved in online dating, but my friends who are, it doesn't sound appealing from the tales that they tell me. And a lot of that is, you know, there's, there's other things going on there, but one of the things is this, this infinite choice and how can you be happy with the person you are with if you could be with any you could be with anybody else instead how do you know he's the right choice yeah how do you know this is the right one so in the paradox of choice which was an yeah. interesting book yeah he talks about that one way of making choices is you you go out and you experience some of the choices say you're looking for a sweater or you're looking for an apartment and you don't really know what what you're quite what you're looking for in the sweater or you're not really sure what because uh, you haven't gone you haven't looked at apartments or houses or cars recent or horses recently so you haven't mm -hmm. you haven't gone horse shopping for a while so you answer a lot of ads and you uh, go look at the horses and you just you decide that 
actually I need I need a horse that's taller than 14 hands but maybe not set uh, no taller than 16 and and I'd like it in this age age range and I'd like it with this level of training so you begin to you begin to discover what your preferences and your the criteria are and then you reach mm -hmm. a point according to him where you say so now that I know what my criteria are then the first the first time I encounter the horse that meets all those criteria that's the horse and I'll stop that's my horse and what, yep where people yep. get into trouble is when they they say they get the mindset of but if I take that horse, there might be one that's even better. And, you know, so there's that, the, there's always a better one out there syndrome right. is where people become miserable in having choice. Yes, it's mm -hmm. called maximizing. So being a, a, so people who are maximizers have this kind of meta goal of trying to always make the very best possible choice at whatever cost. And what you're describing so nicely is satisficing, which is saying this is the good enough choice or kind of the minimum viable yeah. option, uh, the good enough version. And this is near and dear to me because I think I, I tend toward being a maximizer at heart and I, I have to really uh, work on that a bit sometimes. <laughs> to your point, Dominique, can really uh, push back on myself sometimes. So I've just been in the process of looking for a house over the last year and we bought a house this summer and kind of miraculously given the current market but once we bought the house I really have I went in you know it was such a competitive market trying to buy it was just a mess this year and so I was on all these alerts because if you didn't see a new listing the instant it was listed you, you it was you know. gone so yeah so I was getting all these alerts and like the moment that we closed, I went in and unsubscribed from everything. And ah. even though I was actually kind of curious because, you know, you're so in it, you're like, oh, I wonder if that's old or did I still mm -hmm. kind of curious to follow it a little bit, but I made myself turn it all off um, mm -hmm. for that reason, right? Because, okay, we bought this house, you know, there's this huge chunk of money and time yeah. and investment in it. And, I, and I'm happy with it, but I know that if I keep looking at other things, I'll be less happy with it. Yeah, because there's there's always another house. There's always a better barn, a fancier horse, whatever. A horse or saddle. Yeah, 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 and you can absolutely drive yourself crazy. And and I think that relates to the training as well in terms mm -hmm. of when people start comparing where they are with their horse compared to what other people oh, are doing yeah. that that becomes yeah. problematic it's it's not it's not exactly yeah. choice it is choice there is choice involved in that but that whole learning to be content with where you are and what you have and to understand that it was good choices that led you there and not worry about what other people have chosen um, yeah. Yeah. The endless upward social comparison, um, which is one of the reasons that social media tends to make people tend to feel less happy after they've been on social media. And a part of that is that what 
we generally are engaging in in social media, you're not looking when you're looking at other people's lives on social media, you're not looking at their real lives. Yes. You're looking at their, you know, PR feeds of their lives. I mean, we don't, you know, put everything that we're actually going through on social media for good reason. Um, and so you're seeing, you know, a, a generally better version of someone's life, a, a curated version of other people's lives that, that prompt us to engage in a lot of upward social comparison that lacking that type of media exposure, we really wouldn't have so much exposure to. You wouldn't see as many people you know taking as many fancy vacations and those, those sorts, a lot of those things would be private otherwise. Mm. And so that enhanced upward comparison, which you can do consciously or not consciously, tends to make us unhappy uh, or less happy. Do you, have any, do you have any references about that, you know, that good enough attitude to commit to what you've chosen at some point and stop trying to maximize or the this this opposition of the two ways of being do you have any references on that, that um can, like specific papers or my, yeah um, articles or books or, or um I, if someone I, wants to deepen that a little somebody bit. wants to deepen that I mean certainly I, I would mm -hmm. always point people first toward the popular press books uh you know as compared to the to the original yeah. research they're just much more accessible and they're actually read to be you know written to be read <laughs> Mm -hmm. So certainly the book that, that Alex was talking about, uh, The Paradox of Choice, that's a great, a great book. And so part of, I guess, part of what, for the horse training, that is a mindset mm -hmm. shift is culturally what many of us have been trained around is we must be controlling. We must be the controllers. Uh, we are controlling mm -hmm. other people's behavior, often with benevolent intent. You know, I don't want the toddler running across the street because he might get hit. So uh, I'm going to hold his hand. So it, it's being a controller is not necessarily. Well, it's also reinforcing for right. us, too. Right. We know control is a reinforcer. So we <laughs> want control. So, you know, there, there are these benign intents behind control. It is very much what we have culturally, what we have grown up with, both we are controlled and we are controllers. And so are there ways, if you have somebody who is, we'll call it overly controlling, and I'm thinking in terms of horses, because you, you do get hmm. the people who, as handlers, they struggle a little bit with positive reinforcement because they are having to give up what they perceive as control in order to be mm -hmm. successful with the perceived structure of using positive reinforcement where the horse, if I just in, I will take a simple example. Yeah. You have a horse in a stall with a stall guard across the door. Yeah. And you want the horse to come and touch the target so you can click and reinforce him. If the horse is new to the training, you're new to the training, the horse walks away. Right. You know, in the traditional conventional training that that person might be familiar with, they would have ways of saying, let me put you in a round pen, and if you walk away, I will make you come back to me. I have that degree of control. Mm -hmm. And so to have the horse walk away, it's like, what do you mean he can walk away? 
What do you mean that's okay? And and that could be stressful for that individual because it's a real shift right. in mindset. Right. So how do are there yeah. are there ways that we can make that transition, that shift in thinking easier for that person? Mm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. This is not this is not a question I've directly pondered before, but <laughs> well, sure. I would say so you don't, well, you don't necessarily have to have an answer. No, I don't mean I don't know. I well, I would say for one thing it would be in that sort of circumstance, really if you're involved in that, if you're a teacher or you're setting, you're involved with the person, then really in a sense you know, the learner you're most interested yes. in is the person. Yes. Right. Probably in that circumstance. The horse is part of it, of course, but really this is about a person learning to use a new tool and to experience a new way of interacting and a, and a new yes. paradigm shift. And so really you'd be thinking about how do you structure the environment so that this is reinforcing for that person. And we would know that at some point we do want them to be comfortable with, well, the horse might just leave at some point and might come back, but probably if that's what they experience the first time, the first session, that might be too difficult. And so it might be, again, structuring that interaction and that training environment to make, to make it as likely as possible that they experience something reinforcing to them. Um, because, I, you know, as you do more of it, and you become, you know, you have a, as a trainer, a greater repertoire and a deeper relationship with the horse, you know, it's not a big deal if today they say no, thank you, because you know, they're coming back. Right. You know, you know, you've built that, but if you don't have that, it is more, you know, yeah. I, I was going, just going to make a little parenthesis. For me, it's a prerequisite. I right. want to know that he can walk away. If, yeah. if, you know, I'm not comfortable when I, when that possibility is not there for my animal. So I was just, just wanted to make that parenthesis. So you, you can be at the, yeah at the complete other end of the spectrum. But I, I understand that, Alex, your question, because you certainly encounter that in people who have learned traditionally yeah. that it's, it's, again, you know, it's going to be chaos if you can walk away. Yeah. You yeah. know, how can you teach an animal that's not there? Especially if I, in a sense, from what Sarah's describing, if I have a sort of feel low control, what was the expression you used? That, um, so if you have uh, a low control individual. Oh, compensatory. Yeah, the more controlling they are, the more comfortable they're going to be with the training method. So, which is an interesting paradox. Can you say that again, Alex? Well, yeah. if, if I'm feeling in general in my life that I have very little control mm. and then I walk into the horse world and somebody gives me mm. uh, tools where I can control this big, powerful animal, that may make me feel mm -hmm. really good because I'm controlling mm. mm -hmm. this big, powerful animal. Yeah, you see that in yeah. small children yeah. learning. So, uh, yeah. so then when, when they come across my path and I want to share this amazing world of 
of positive reinforcement training, one of the places where somebody might get tripped up and I might not understand or recognize the dynamic that's going on is this sort of what I would call the paradox of control. Never mind, the, so there's the mm -hmm. paradox of choice, but there's also the paradox of control. So how can I help that individual understand that by giving the horse more say and giving the horse more control of his own outcomes mm. that you both gain. Mm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's it there's an idea this leads me to which is um so I personally see clicker training and its application in horses as as an innovation, right? It's a new it's a new technology in many ways. It's an innovation and it's an innovation in a pretty um, conservative yes. uh, culture. And I don't mean politically right. conservative. I mean, conservative in terms of, you know, resistant yes. to change. And there's, there's a lot of thought and there's a whole area of inquiry around the diffusion of innovations and around the psychology of, of innovation. There's a whole area around that. And I see this as kind of relevant, you know, what you're saying there. I, I'll share a story here that um, uh, a colleague of mine had. So she had a background in, in reproduction and equine reproduction. And she was working for um, a vet at the time and was going to um, a big breeding farm. And they were, uh, the vet told her to go and give a, she would, they were um, short cycling a mare. So to induce estrus and you do this through um, um hormone injections prostaglandin and she was the vet said go ahead and give this mare um, a shot of prostin which was a older form of of the drug um, and she kind of wasn't really sure why because there were newer versions of this available now and she said okay i mean she did what she was told but she came back in the truck and she kind of said to the to the senior vet like why are we giving this older version of the drug? Because the new, so the old version had a lot of side effects. So the mares would get muscle cramping and like, like their whole side, you know, like to the extent that their abdomens would be cramping and, and they wouldn't be sweating, sometimes have diarrhea. So some really nasty side effects. Yeah. Why are you giving that drug? Yeah. And, and, and there was a new one, which is Estromate. And that was sort of more the standard. Now it has fewer side effects. It's actually even more effective. So she's like, why are we giving this, you know? And she said, well, is this, um, is it because it's cheaper? Is it that, that it's just cheaper? And this vet kind of laughed and he said, oh, no, no, I, it's actually more expensive <laughs> than the newer, more effective, no side effect drug. Like the new drug is, it doesn't have the side effects. And she's like, why are we doing this? And he said that when he tried to switch over the, all these kind of old time breeding farm managers, tried to switch them over to the new drug and was they were calling him to complain and saying, well, I don't see her, you know, I'm not seeing her sweating. I'm not seeing this. And he's going, no, no, it's fine. And, and they, what they would say is if I don't, if I don't see her sweating, how do I know it's working? Wow. How do I know it's working? And so they didn't want the newer, more effective, kinder, cheaper, option better on every possible dimension mm. because if without these side effects how do i know it's working and so there's 
I mean, it's kind of very sad on one hand, but if you zoom away from the, the kind of sadness of that, there is something actually very valid there, which is, okay, there was a feedback loop. Mm-hmm. And now that feedback loop has been broken, right? So I have a behavior, we are treating this mayor, and now I don't see the consequence. How do I know it's working? And I think about that as really important to innovations in general. And I think it's important to clicker training. So people are coming from a certain paradigm and a certain set of tools and a certain background in training. And they're used to seeing some particular kind of responses that tell them that whatever they're doing is quote unquote working. Uh, I think we, you know, and and now we're taking that away. I think that's really relevant. It's a legitimate question. How do I know it's working? Like we do have to be able to answer that. for Because a lot of the standard that people will measure that by is, and quite reasonably, I can get on my horse and I can go to the county fair and win, win ribbons. You know, I can show. And mm-hmm. so how do I know it's working if I'm not going to the county fair, but lots of clicker trainers, once they get going, decide that they don't really want to go to the county fair anymore. Yeah, mm, that's true. But yeah. even, you yeah. know, sometimes without even the feedback thing, you know, just because that's the way it's been done. I have a, a little story, yeah. too, about this woman who was cooking sausages And every time she would take the sausage out of the package, she would cut both ends. And one day her daughter asked her, why are you cutting the ends of the sausage? And she said, well, you know, that's how my mom did it. And so the daughter asked the grandmother, grandma, why do you cut the ends of the sausages? And she said, well, because my my casserole, my, my pan, was too small. You know, I had to cut the sausages in because it wouldn't fit in the pan. But now the daughter has a bigger pan, but she's still cutting the sausages ends. So sometimes it's just the way it's been done forever. And you don't even ask the question. You know, that's just how you do it. Right, right. Yeah, there are a lot of factors that go into why somebody might be you know, reluctant to change. And, and then there's also kind of this idea around diffusion of innovation. Or they don't challenge. They just don't yeah, they, challenge they, they, they it. don't challenge. You know, right. it's been done that right. way. I mean, the sausage in the end is cooked. And so that's fine. We'll just continue yeah. to do it. And because there's a lot of oral, um, you know, tradition that is, is, and certainly in the horse world you have a lot of oral tradition you know with the big masters who are conveying the way it's done and people just gobble it up and that's that's how it's done so again in choice when i was first starting to teach and share clicker training my idea was you know it was never my goal to get uh every horse person out there clicker training if that had been my goal, mm-hmm. I would have driven myself crazy because it's not a realistic goal. And and furthermore, I don't no. really think that we all want to or should be doing the same thing because uh, that would limit innovation. So there's there is value in mm-hmm. some variety. But and it's you know it's a metaphor that I learned from a different context, but it was a good metaphor. 
So roughly the time that I was starting to explore cooker training, if you went to the grocery store and you uh, were shopping for apples, there would be Macintosh and Red Delicious. And maybe if you're lucky, Golden Delicious. Granny Smith. Yeah. Oh, but, okay. so yeah. Know, but not really very many choices. I don't like Macintosh apples. They're too mushy. And so, you know, it's, my choices were fairly limited. And now when you go to the grocery store to buy apples, you'll have the, the Macintosh and the Red Delicious and the Granny Smith and the Pink Ladies and the Galas and the Braeburns and the, and the, and the, and the, and the, and the, and, and they're all there. And so you can choose and you can select because you have more choices. You can choose apples that you enjoy. And the people who like Macintosh apples, the Macs are still there. So there, you know, if, if that's really what you like and you were happy with that one choice way back when, well, you can still get the Macintosh apples. And I don't need to worry about Macintosh apples being on display because unless I reach out and put the bag of Macintosh apples in my cart, they're not going to jump into my cart on, on their own. <laughs> so it, I can feel safe, you know, having, letting the Macintosh apples remain in the display. So how is all of this relevant? Mm. Well, when I was starting to share clicker training, the, the options for what I would call horse-friendly training were hard to find. It, at least mm -hmm. in my immediate area, when you went out and looked around, that what was out there involved a lot of now hear this, do it now, make it happen type of attitude towards the horses. And what I wanted was, so basically it was Macintosh apples everywhere. You didn't really have a choice. It was just Macintosh <clears throat> apples. And what I wanted was for clicker training to be one of the choices. So now it's it's Macintosh apples and, and, and Gala apples. And the Gala apples are the clicker training. And you have a choice. And so you can pick, you, you, and I wanted, I wanted clicker training to be a, an easily available choice. But now we are in the situation of the story that you're telling where we have a better choice it's less expensive, this, this drug for the mayor. It doesn't have the side effect. It's a better choice. It's available. Might even be in the vet's truck. You know, who knows? But, <laughs> right, but right. these individuals who have the choice, who could choose it, are staying with the older, mushy Macintosh apples. So that's another aspect of choice that even when it's in front of you and you could choose it, you don't. So, you know, you, you, yeah. so it's that shifting from, but that's the way I've always done it, or that's what I've always chosen. I've yeah. always gotten vanilla ice cream. You know, I've never tried the pistachio. I'm, I'm sure I, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. How do you encourage the making of, how do you encourage someone to experiment who has become sort of locked into their choices? Yeah. One, one thing I would, I would actually say is 
in terms of the choices that are available or that people perceive yes. are available, because essentially yeah. that's the same thing. What you perceive is available is yeah. what is available to you. I, I oh, Absolutely, it's come a, a huge way. I mean, we're here having this podcast. These things exist now. There's so much available. There is so much out there and available. I would still think it's fair to say, though, in the, on the ground, day to day, out there in barns, that this is not when you talked about this a bit, the last time I was on on the podcast, we talked about you know just the visibility of clicker training, and so I I think it's it's there for those who who want it and who want to seek it out now. I think for most people who are just out in a barn somewhere or looking for somewhere to ride, it's probably not on their menu of available choices, um, at least in what's being offered professionally. So there's still I think a long way to go before people really see it as like, well, I could go to this barn and learn this discipline or this right. discipline, you know, where it's really readily available. I think another piece you're touching on though, is that as, and this isn't really my expertise, but I have some familiarity with these ideas that as innovations, there's a, a concept that's been very enduring called the diffusion of innovation theory. And this is uh, someone, E.M. Rogers, this has been around since the 60s. So it's nothing new, nothing unique to me. But his model kind of describes like the bell curve of innovation diffusion and, and how innovations move through populations of people. And his idea is you have different stages. And at the very beginning, you know, those tail end, at the beginning of the tail, you have the innovators. And the innovators, these are the first people who, this is you, right? <laughs> and you don't probably, you know, these are these people, the, you don't, you know, they, they're venturesome, novelty seeking, they like to take risks, they're open to new ideas. You don't really have to appeal to these people. They're actually out there creating the new things, they're creating the things. And then you get the early adopters. Um, and I would probably say I'm probably in that bucket of maybe being an early adopter of this. So. These are people who like opportunities to change and they see the need for a change. They're open to new ideas. And for those people, you don't really have to convince them about the innovation. You just have to give them some tools. Um, so the how-tos. Um, so for your early adopters, for people like me, I just needed yes. the book yeah. and the video, right? Like that. And once I had the book and the video, I was off running. At least in this right. domain, I, I would, I was, maybe I'm not an early adopter of, of everything, but in this domain I was. And then you kind of start as, but then as these innovations move, you know, then you kind of hit different. Um, and here, talking through the marketing professor lens, you're getting into basically different market segments, different types of people, people with different types of characteristics and different um, desires and interests and different sort of profiles and you get into then it goes to like the early majority. So as you're going up to the top of the bell curve and then you have the late majority and then you have the laggards. And that early majority, this is kind of really where something really becomes common and, and really gets into the full population. And for these people, they're maybe not so resistant, but this is like the, the show don't tell group of people. They need to see they need the success stories. They need to see it's effective. They're not necessarily going to be, you know, digging their heels resistant, but they're not going to just try it for the sake of trying it. And they're not going to, so they, they need to just see it work and they need to just show me this is better. And I think that 
that's a little like I think maybe you're also talking about people who are even further along the curve of like the late majority or the laggards and those are people who are actually actively resistant to change and to some extent I mean different right, strokes right, for different folks right. like you know if you're way out on that curve fine yeah. no worries don't it's not your cup of tea that's just right. do whatever you know do your own thing right, that's right we don't need to, but but I think that we, yeah like yeah, let it go it's okay worry about the laggards they're in a different frame and and that's fine yeah um so it's I I think it's great that we're heading into sort of the marketing hat as it were but the what yeah. we want to do is make it really easy for the that right. middle range for them to find it and for them to see right. the effectiveness. Yep. Yep. And I think that's where for people in that place, it's, this is more just my intuition, but I, I think it's less, it's not so much about talking about it or telling people this is good or not. It's just about letting them see it and experience it um, and have the direct experience and and to what we talked about the last time I was here and I was talking about going into barns and doing some clicker training and actually having the opportunity to do that with horses who and people who were not coming from the same system. I actually think that a lot of the reason I was able to do that is like, I, I didn't really talk about it yeah. that much. Like I don't, it, it's not that it's not the talking, it's the doing. Mm-hmm. So it's just, like with having my own horse in a barn, I wasn't going around telling everybody, well, I'm doing this and this, and this is why it works. And this is how it works. And I mean, I really didn't do that unless somebody asked me directly. It was just more like, here's this horse and I'm just training him and he's in front of you. And, oh, you saw him do something that was, you know, interesting or unusual or surprising, or you saw, you see something you like in it. And then people would approach if they were interested, not everybody is. And again, when I'm working with other people's horses, if they're not necessarily coming from the same background, but I'll just sort of say, you know, is it all right if I try this, this little thing here? And I'll, if they say yes, I'll do that little thing. And often then they'll see their horse doing something that they didn't know it could do, or they find is kind of interesting or fun, or they see their horse really enjoying the the training. It's a harder, it's, it's less scalable. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because it's not just about putting out information. It's about kind of a little more boots on the ground, I think. I mean, you can have videos online and that sort of thing, and that that could be helpful. But I think that piece is really having it be visible in yes, yeah. in the horse world. Yeah. People see it or they experience it because their horse is sort of dragged and kicking and screaming to cook your training. Now I've tried right. everything else, and and I and then I tried yeah you know clicker training and. And I could load my horse on the trailer. It's just amazing. And so here I am wanting to learn more, which is, yeah. Yeah. Which is really quite neat. Yep. So. so marketing, we were going there. Time for the music, because we're about to shift to a new subject. We're going to talk about marketing. But don't worry. I generally want to run the other way when people start talking about marketing, because usually they're talking about strategies and techniques that I don't find appealing. You know the sort of thing I'm talking about, all the high pressure campaigns to get you to buy something that you don't even really want. But that's not the kind of approach that Sarah is going to be taking, and it's certainly not what she's going to be talking about. 
marketing is so much more than just trying to sell you more stuff. We'll save what marketing really is for next time. I think you're going to be surprised by the direction that our conversation takes. How's that for a tease? Well, you're going to have to wait for the next episode to find out what I mean. But since I'm talking about marketing, it is ironic that, yes, I do want to sell you something. But really, it's a good something. It's Science Camp. Registration is now open for next year's 2022 Science Camps. The first will be February 17th through 20, 2022, and the second will be September 2 to 5. That's over Labor Day weekend. Our presenters are probably very familiar to many of you. They are Dr. Jesus Rosales Ruiz, Mary Hunter, Dr. Michaela Hempen, Anita Schnee, and myself. The February Science Camp is for first-time campers. If you have always wanted to attend science camp, but you weren't able to make it, this virtual science camp is for you. And remember, it is a virtual event. We're not going to be camping out in the middle of winter in tents. This is, this is a virtual event. We're going to be including the key topics from previous science camps, so that means that we'll be presenting again Mary Hunter's Airless Learning and Atomic Shaping. We'll look at Jesus's What is Learned, Stimulus Control, and How Cues Evolve. And then we're going to be looking at Michaela's groundbreaking work with her mayor, Blondie. And as always, Anita Schnee will be joining us. Anita is a Feldenkrais practitioner who has been following my work. Her sessions give us all a break from sitting at the computer, and they also let us experience directly the constructional training concepts that are being discussed. I'll be presenting on loopy training and reversibility, a teaching strategy that I've used for decades that very much relates to what the others are presenting. And as always, I will be the orchestra conductor. Our second science camp will be held over Labor Day weekend, this camp will be for experienced campers. We're going to be diving deep into some new topics. At the moment, the proposed topics are chain analysis. That's something Jesus has been teasing us with, and we definitely want to learn more about that. And we're going to be looking at reinforcement systems and an even deeper dive into stimulus control, reversibility, pauses and resets, and what is meant by the strength of the behavior. What makes Science Camp so unique is we don't have a set hour-by-hour -hour program for each day where a presenter has a limited time to give a conference-style presentation. When his time is up, that's the end of the presentation. Instead, we have an overall topic for each day that we want to cover. We have a starting point, but where we head is very much determined by the questions and the discussions. If we find a gem that needs further exploration, we follow that discussion. Time constraints for the speaker are removed, which means that each speaker can really relax and dig down deeper into the subjects we're covering. It's a format that works. Our science camps are really helping to clarify some very important training concepts, and they're pushing the envelope forward in terms of how we view shaping. We are 
all becoming better teachers as a result of Science Camp. The details for both Science Camps are posted on my website, theclickercenter.com. Be sure you put in the, the, so it's theclickercenter.com. Pull down the events menu at the top of the page, and that will take you to the Science Camp details. In the pricing for February, we have included discounts for those of you who have attended previous science camps and would still like to join us in February. The conversation is definitely enriched by having our regulars joining in, and new details are revealed whenever a subject is revisited. So whether you are a first-time science camper or one of our seasoned regulars, I do hope you'll come join us in February for a deep dive into the science and application of behavioral analysis. You can register online. We have an early bird price, which is good until the end of this year. And if you have any questions about the science camps, do email me directly. And remember, science camp tends to fill up fast. So if you think you want to attend, it's really best to reserve your spot soon. Again, go to my website, theclickercenter.com for details. And until next time, as always, have fun with your horses. <music>